Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, what is it like to be a refugee? What is it like to lose your home and all you have known through circumstances that are beyond your control? What is it like to travel from one place to the next and hear people say, or see them thinking, there's no home for you here? Over half a million refugees have made their way over the Mediterranean Sea since the beginning of this year alone. Many of them have come from Syria. They're fleeing a horrific war. People are also coming from Iraq, from countries in Central and South Asia, from Africa and from the Western Balkans. In April, five boats carrying almost 2,000 people sank in the Mediterranean Sea. Here's a picture of some of the lucky ones. These people were saved by a rescue mission, but on that occasion, more than 1,200 people lost their lives in the water. Here's a picture of some guys at the border of Greece and Macedonia. You see them there in the background and the police in the foreground. They're sitting there at the border, not sure what's going to happen next. What do these guys want? They want peace. And they want justice. Don't they? And don't you? And as this refugee crisis has unfolded this year, if you've been watching the news, it's very interesting. We've seen some of the biggest challenges actually lie in the human heart. Many of the wealthiest and safest nations in the world are in Europe. Yet one government after another has tried to push these people onto somebody else. The glorious exception to this was Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, who said that the country was wide open for the refugees. But as a result, her popularity in Germany has now declined to an all-time low. We all agree that there should be peace and justice. We just want someone else to pay for it. Not in my backyard. It's not my problem. Now, the prophet Isaiah lived in a time of great prosperity and wealth. It was, he lived and worked in the decades leading up to 700 BC. So roughly 760 to 700 years before Jesus. But hand in hand with the prosperity and the wealth, there was great injustice. The poor were exploited and trampled underfoot and ground down like wheat. Isaiah preached a message of God to the leaders and to the people of Judah. Now, as I said last week, Judah was the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom was called Israel. And in Isaiah's time, the northern kingdom fell. There was a superpower from the east called Assyria and the Assyrians didn't take many prisoners. They came in to Israel and they absolutely crushed it. And Isaiah's people see that happening. And so his book is really like a big red flag. He's saying, whoa, turn back to God now, or we're going to go down like Israel did. So the first chapter of the book is a stinging rebuke. If you were here last week, you, you saw how he exposes the sins of the people. He exposes their rebellion and their religion, their rebellion from God's laws of love. They were unjust They were greedy. They took bribes. They were corrupt. They attempted then to smooth things over with God by religious observance. And God, according to Isaiah, detests that. But he does hold out some hope. If they would repent, which means turn back to God, 
From the heart, God makes an extraordinary promise. Though your sins are like crimson and scarlet, they could be made whiter than snow, washed away and given a fresh start. There is still hope. But chapter 1 of Isaiah ends on a dark note. Have a look at it, will will you? Verse 29, you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you've delighted. You'll be disgraced because of the gardens that you've chosen. These are uh, idolatrous worship practices. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Dark note. But very abruptly, the tone changes. Chapter 2 begins with a beautiful vision. In our Bibles, it has been given the heading, the mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord. It's a vision of a different tomorrow. And in it, we we see three things. We see the world transformed. We see the word unleashed. And we see that we have to walk in the light. Let me say it again. The world transformed. The word unleashed. So walk in the light. The world transformed. Ten years ago, my wife and I moved to the United States for graduate school, and one day we were surprised to hear two young, our two young children promising their loyalty to the flag of the United States of America. They'd been taught a pledge at school. It goes something like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You see what it's saying? It's saying, I promise to be loyal to a country that will provide liberty and justice for everyone. Now, that's a great ambition. Wouldn't you like to live in a place where that was true? Justice for all. It's been the engine for the great attempts at social change of the last hundred years. The desire for justice. Justice, to live in a place that's fair, where you'll be treated well and fairly, to be given equal opportunities. This is foundational to our great city. Manchester is a place committed to justice and equality, and a place that hates injustice. We all want that. But you know, it constantly evades our grasp. Let me give you just one example of a local shopkeeper near where I live. He's a a neighbor of mine. He works really hard at running the newsagent. And when I say he works hard, he takes one day of holiday a year. He lives above the shop. He works early morning, late at night. One day off a year. And there are three things he's shared with me as we've talked over the last few months. The first was an occasion, and more than one occasion, where thieves have gone into the shop and openly stolen stuff from the shop and then laughed in his face. Why? Because they know the police won't convict them because the court costs are too expensive compared to the amount of stuff they've stolen so they can walk free. He actually spent a day getting hold of a CCTV tape showing it to the authorities with hard evidence of what these guys had done, and they said, yeah, we know these guys. Unfortunately, there's not much we can do about it. It's not just. He, uh, is, his business is committed to a, a certain uh, supply chain, and the supplier routinely sends many more magazines than he can sell, charges him for them up front, 
and then refuses to refund the money because their systems of recording are so poor. So he has to spend hours on the phone chasing down incompetent staff. It's not a problem to the big businesses like WH Smith, but to a small business, it's, it's crippling. Then to top it all, at the end of the summer, a gang of boys, 10 or 12 of them, cycled up, parked their bikes outside, came into the shop and started kicking the displays and taking chocolate. He asked them to leave, and the ringleader walked up to him and began punching him in the chest. 10 or 12-year-old boy. And he said, you can't touch me. If you do, I'll sue you. It's not just. And because it's not just, he can't live at peace. You see that? See how it pans out? Now, whether it's at the macro level of geopolitics and Syria and refugees coming into Europe, or whether it's just at the local level of injust injustice in systems and human behavior, we all want justice and peace, but we can't get it. But Isaiah says, one day the world will be transformed. One day, justice and peace will come. It's a promise. Look with me again at verse 4. He, that's God, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Two things are promised here. The first is justice. The Lord God will judge and settle all disputes. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of judging is broader than it, what we think of in, with the word judge in English. If you think of judge and you're from the UK, you probably think of an old man wearing a white wig who's half asleep, and at the end of a court hearing, he gets a hammer, bangs it on a thing, and says, Guilty! Now, that's part of it, that sort of affecting the law and giving punishments. But the Hebrew idea in the Bible is much broader than just that bit of justice. It's really about putting everything right, putting it to rights, establishing good order. Isaiah says, in the last days, God will judge fairly and put things to rights. And in Isaiah's vision, God settles disputes, he deals with conflict, and he puts an end to it. And as a result, a second thing flows out. Peace comes to our world. In fact, it will be so peaceful that military hardware will be redundant. Isaiah says, uh, you know, they won't need swords and spears anymore. It'll just be so much scrap metal. You'll take your sword and think, what am I going to do with it anymore? I know, I'll make it into a plow so I can plow the fields. You'll take your spear and think, well, I'll maybe make a pruning hook and then I can trim my vine and get some good grapes off it. You just won't need them. You won't need to keep a baseball bat in your bedroom in case somebody breaks into your house. Or if you're Matt Price, a gun under your bed. <laughs> it's just so much scrap metal. You won't need to fight anymore. No more fighting my friends. Now, does this all sound a little bit 1960s? Remember John Lennon's song? Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, I can certainly imagine people living for today, because that's what they do. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. 
Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Now that song is as close to a statement of public theology as we have got left in this country. It is so... uh, It reflects what most British people believe, that it was used in the opening ceremony of the London Olympics. In fact, it was the climax of the ceremony that the whole world was watching. They sang that song and unveiled a massive uh, statue of John Lennon's face looking up at the sky. And everybody sang, imagine, there's no God, there's no religion. What would the prophet Isaiah say to that? Now, I suspect he would love some of it. Nothing to kill or die for. No greed or hunger. All the people sharing all the world. Living as one. Isaiah's giving this the big green light and the thumbs up. But there's a major hole in John Lennon's vision. It won't work. It won't work because it doesn't engage with the underlying problems that we have that cause injustice and war and conflict. Because Lenin's vision doesn't deal with the human heart. And so it is destined to fail. The novelist G.K. Chesterton once wrote to the Times newspaper. The Times had posed the question, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote, dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I'm wrong with the world. The problem starts in here. Because as long as my heart is self-serving and self-centered and self-justifying, there will be no justice and peace. There couldn't be, because I'd soon despoil it. And I think Isaiah would reply to John Lennon, Imagine there's a mountain, it's easy if you try, no hill can dwarf it, above it only sky. Imagine all the people living by God's word. Oh, oh, oh. And John Lennon might reply, did you say a mountain? Yes, that's right. Imagine there's a mountain. Use your imagination, John. Imagine there's a mountain. Just read with me again verses 2 and 3. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. See, the world will be transformed when the word of God is unleashed. The word of God is unleashed. Now remember that Isaiah's message is a vision. So you don't take it all literally. Uh, This is what he sees. Uh, God reveals it to him as a vision. And this is powerful imagery. So you've just got to think, have you ever seen the Himalayas? And you've seen those snow-capped mountains and they're kind of in the background. Higher than all the rest of them is Mount Everest. I think that's the tallest mountain in the world. And, and just imagine that the height of those mountains, majestic peaks. And Isaiah says, uh, the mountain where the temple is in Jerusalem is going to be bigger than all of them. Now, what's going on here? Jerusalem had a hill in it. And on that hill, they built a great and glorious building called the temple. 
and the hill was called the Temple Mount. From ground level, and when you were walking up from lower levels up towards Jerusalem, travelers often commented on how they saw the temple from a distance because it was the highest thing around. And you could see that it was really glorious. It was, the front of it was white, and the top had, had gold-plated um, kind of balustrade along the front. And so it glinted in the sun, white and gold. And the pilgrims coming towards Jerusalem, their hearts would skip when they saw the temple because that's the center of worship. That's where you go if you want to engage with God. And that's where you go if you want to hear God's word. The Bible, the scriptures are taught and preached there. His word goes out from the temple. But actually, the funny thing is that hill that the temple was on isn't that big. It's not a massive mountain. Uh, It's smaller than the nearby Mount of Olives, where Jesus went and taught on one occasion. It certainly wasn't as big as some of the huge mountains which are further north. But in Isaiah's vision, it becomes the tallest mountain in the world. You see the Himalayas in your mind's eye. There's Everest, a mountain so high that people have actually died trying to climb it. Isaiah says, the Temple Mount will be firmly established and it will be exalted as the highest of the mountains. So now it's bigger than Everest. It's up there in the clouds. Everyone can see it. And they can see the snow-capped top. And there's the temple glinting in the sun. And what they say in verse 3 is, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. Why? So that he will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. What does this mean? It means that a time will come when God's word will be unleashed, made public, distributed, given out, and all kinds of people, all sorts of nations. This is exactly what your job is all about, brother. is to get the word out there. That isn't in the script. It just struck me. And that word is powerful in people's lives to change them. Great Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he would defend the Bible. And he said, defend the Bible? I would as soon try to defend a lion. Unchain it and it will defend itself. So the point of the really high mountain is that God lives there and he speaks in the Bible and when his word goes out and is unleashed, it has global impact. See what the nations say. Come, let us go up. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The nations around Israel all believe that the gods lived on the high mountains. Many people in the world still believe this. The Greeks uh, believe that there was uh, Olympus on the top of uh, uh, the, the gods lived on top of Mount Olympus. The Babylonians believed at a different mountain. If you uh, ever hear our, a mission partner in North India talking, Daniel, there, there are gods living on the top of the mountains up there in the Himalayas. This is the mindset. But here, the, the nations see that there's one mountain that's higher than all the rest, and they see the truth of what God is saying. And that's what makes a world of justice and peace possible. Let me just say that again, because I said it too quickly. When you see God's word, and it starts to rule your life, that makes peace and justice possible. Because it's the message of God's word that changes human hearts and enables us to pursue justice and peace at every level, from a marriage 
to a sibling relationship, to a work colleague, to changing laws in society. Nothing else can do it like God's word. Now, you might be thinking, well, how does that work? Let me give you three examples from Martin Luther, the great German reformer. Luther says, I'm going to paraphrase, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, tells you that you're more sinful than you ever realized, but you're more loved than you dare to believe. Most conflict comes out of people's refusing to back down and humble themselves, doesn't it? But the Christian man or woman has already been humbled. They've already been told and believed that they are more sinful than they ever realized. They don't need to fight for their self-righteousness because they've been given righteousness by Jesus Christ. That makes peace possible at the heart level. Secondly, the gospel, the good news, tells you that this life is fleeting and fragile. It'll be gone in an instant. But the Lord Jesus gave up his riches in heaven so that you could become rich. He secured for you a glorious future. He gave his life for you at the cross. So won't he now give you everything that is necessary? Will he not take you at last to be with him in his home? The Bible talks about it as a place of many mansions. So we don't need to fight about our property, what we own, how clever we are, how important we are, how good we are, because God has already given us so much more. If I know that the eyes of the most important person in the universe are looking on me and delighting in me, why do I need your approval? I'm free to serve you, not to fight for you to approve of me and give me your esteem. I don't need to live for this life only because I've got a better life to come. Thirdly, when we live for the things of this world, our hearts are never satisfied. You can never have enough. We're on the treadmill like everybody else, trying to get the next gadget, trying to get a bigger house, trying to get a shiny car, trying to get whatever it is. But when we hold everything else in contempt for the sake of Jesus, counting everything else as rubbish, we're free to live in beautiful agreement with one another. See how the word... When it's unleashed, starts to take its way in your life, changes you from the inside out. So the gospel makes you into a person of peace and a person of justice. See the change? It happens now, and only the gospel can produce such results. Isaiah says that this is going to happen in the last days, and those are the days we live in, the days after Jesus came, died, rose, and ascended. So the vision of Isaiah is this. Vast numbers of people from all different nations will see the truth of God and there'll be a flood of them. Not just a trickle, but a flood pouring out and wanting to go and hear God's word on the mountain and we will finally experience the peace and justice that we yearn for. So what's the real world cash value for you and me? The real world cash value is this. Your life matters. Your life is immensely important Christian friend. Your life counts because how you live, the way you live, the way you are can change people forever. Through God's spirit, you can bring peace and justice to situations that, where it wasn't there by the way you live. People can come to Christ. You can give them, as Pete said from our table, a copy of John's gospel and they can actually find life in Jesus through that. They can have peace with God and then peace with their neighbours. It's real. It works. It actually happens.
People can experience shalom, which means whole peace, health. How? If we walk in the light. So third and final point, we have to walk in the light of God's word, doing what he says. The Gentiles, the nations respond in verse 3, come let us go up to the temple. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. They want to learn. This is so sweet to them. They want to hear what God has to say so that they can talk together about it and change and, and make their life line up with what God wants. And they will be, um, it's inspiring. And it, it's like this is the thing they care about the most in the world. This is their one work to teach each other and to learn God's ways. And so in verse 5, Isaiah turns to his own people, the Jews, the descendants of Jacob. And look what he says in verse 5. He's trying to stir them up. He says, Come. Descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in God's light. Let's walk in his ways. Well, how do we walk in the light? It's difficult for me to pick any one thing because Jesus, when he was about to go to heaven, commanded his disciples to go into all the world and teach everything he'd commanded them, teach people to obey everything that he'd commanded them. So everything that Jesus taught, which includes the whole Bible, is important for us to keep and obey and observe. So it, I don't really, I'm not going to pick out one or two things for you, but specifically in this passage, we ought to be people of justice and people of peace. Stands to reason, doesn't it? If the world needs justice and peace and God has come to create justice and peace, then walking in the light must mean that you and I become people who are just and peaceful. So let me ask, are you a person of justice? A person of peace? Justice is best defined in the book of Job, the Old Testament. Job illustrates what living a just life looks like. Here's what he says. I rescued the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had no one to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That's what a just person looks like. Job says, if I have denied justice to my servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. These would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Here's what a just life looks like. To omit to do good to any fellow human being is an offense to God. To do good to them. Whether it's a homeless person that you see in the street, whether it's what you do with your money and your time and resources, whether it's the influence you could have some of you, many of you, university-educated people can, can work things for change and good in our world. That is justice. 
whether it's things that we do as a church through our life groups and our communities that actually don't just serve ourselves, but serve the needy and the poor and those around us. That is justice, and that's what God wants. And to omit to do it, Job says, is an offense against him. Are we people who are just? Are we people who are just? Are you generous with your resources? Are you concerned about the poor? Is this a priority? I was very challenged by this this week. There's some homeless guys near where I live. I see them a lot. And I'll be absolutely honest, part of me just resents keep handing out, buying them sandwiches. But I was so changed by this scripture that I saw them and greeted them like they were friends. Hey guys, do you want a sandwich? Yeah, yeah. Can I have a bottle of milk as well? Of course you can. Don't usually give out money because a lot of it ends up spent on addiction. But you can always buy someone a sandwich. You can always give them the time of day. You can always treat them like they've got dignity. You can always say, God bless you. You don't have to ram a, got John's gospel in their pocket every time you see them. But sometime it would be good to do that. Looking after the poor. And justice isn't just the poor. It's right relationships in the whole of life. So let me ask you just to think about your life and ask you, in your heart, don't, don't say anything, in your heart, are you pursuing peace and justice with everyone you know? Or is there somebody at the moment who you're not speaking to? Is there somebody in your life at the moment who you have not forgiven? You're holding a grudge. Is there somebody you couldn't look in the eye because you're so annoyed with them? Is there somebody who you routinely treat as if they're an idiot? Or they're just irritating? Is there a colleague nobody likes? Listen, if we're to be people who walk in the light, we have to pursue justice and peace, feed on God's word, and stir each other up towards love and good deeds. Fifteen years ago, my wife met a woman at a postnatal class. Both she and this other woman had had their first baby, both sons, and um, we became friends, the two couples. They then came to an exploring Christianity course at our church, and they trusted Jesus, and they followed him. Fifteen years have gone by pretty fast, our lives have been sort of parallel in some ways. They've stayed in South London. We've moved around a bit. We've both had five kids, and they're all sort of similar ages. A few years ago, the husband was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus. He underwent chemotherapy. He had a very drastic surgery at the end of last year, and uh, he, he lost a lot of weight, but we thought he was clear. This week, we heard some bad news. It spread. So now he has liver cancer, and there's no way back. So he's 50. He's got three to five years to live. Five children. The youngest of them is about two. My wife went to see them yesterday. I phoned her up. How was it? She said, you know, it was strange. They were at peace. They were at peace. 
because they know where he's going. And they know the Lord Jesus. Now, there's nothing else in the world that can achieve that in a human heart, believe me. So I said, well, what are they doing about money? He's not able to work, three to five years to live, five children. She said, well, four men from our old church paid them a visit this week. And these four men have committed to pay off their mortgage and buy them a bigger house outright, no debt, just to give it to them so that she's looked after when he passes. Now, that is justice. That's a right relationship. That's generous. It's going way beyond what you need to do. And listen, nothing can change people like that. Nothing except God's word unleashed, the gospel applied to human hearts and lives. And let me say, this kind of change that makes people at peace when the bad news comes and makes four guys put their hand in their pocket to the tune of a couple of hundred thousand pounds, that kind of change does not happen overnight. It comes through day to day, walking in the light with Jesus, living by his word and immersing yourself in community with other Christians, walking with Jesus, walking in the light, and your heart and mind is changed. So let me just say to you, Grace Church members and friends, we're not playing at church here. You know, we've, been, we've had a remarkably easy run of it as a church. We've not had any big disasters. We've not had any, anyone having an affair and running off. Or, we've, we've had a remarkably easy time, but the dark times will come. We need to be walking in the light when the dark times come so that we're ready. And we need to be living now like people of peace and justice and generosity because we're living in the last times. The mountain of the Lord is being raised up. The word is going out to all the nations. And people are coming to Christ from every tribe, tongue, language group, country. What a time to be alive. Will you commit with me that we're going to live and walk in the light? Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Father, um, we want to say today that we love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you are doing in us. We confess our sins and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us now to live for you with everything we have, to walk in the light and not to be afraid. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory now and everlasting. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.